Let's pray. Father, now as we open our Bibles and seek to hear from you, we have sung to you, now we seek to hear from you through your word. And I pray, Father, that your word will go forth and that your people will hear your voice and know that you are God and that you are Lord and follow you. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, take your Bible and join me back in Luke 18. And the passages don't get easier, they get harder. As today we come across one of the Lord's most memorable personal encounters while He walked this earth. It is Jesus and the rich young ruler. But we don't come to this familiar episode in isolation. We are in the midst of a broader theme within Luke. And that theme is the kingdom of God. Back going into chapter 17, we have seen questions like, when is it coming? What will it look like? Who will enter it? And it is that last question, who will enter it, that is the most pressing for us today. Just as it was the most pressing question almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke these words. Because whether you are 9 years old or 90 years old, Nobody knows when death is coming. Nobody knows when their time will come. This earthly life, you know, we're about to bury one of our beloved members today. This life is but a vapor. It is fleeting. So the most urgent question about the kingdom of God is who will enter it? And along with that, how do you enter it? And that is why Luke spent more time on that question than any other. It's why last Sunday we saw in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector how it was not the self-righteous religious Pharisee who went home justified. It was the awful, sinful, deplorable tax collector who came into the presence of God and he did so humbly in humility and he did so as a repenting one, a repenter. And this morning we build upon that with this gigantic warning for each and every one of us. We see again in what we are about to read how we must enter God's kingdom and how we are exposed to the most dangerous sin. So let's read chapter 18 verses 15 through 27 this morning. Following right up on the parable. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. 
And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Much has been said, much has been written about this passage, and it, it begins with almost a parenthesis, kind of a, 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 what seems to be a parenthetical insertion into the text because we read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verses 9 to 14, and then we look at this encounter with the rich young ruler, and they are strikingly similar. So it might seem odd that right in between them is a paragraph, what amounts to three verses, about children. And many have been puzzled by that. In fact, the pastor and commentator I probably trust the most and read the most in his commentary on this passage spends much of it about the doctrine of infant salvation. The idea that the unborn and small children and, and people with cognitive disabilities are saved by the grace of God. And I concur with his views on that matter. I believe the Bible is much clearer than many believe it is about what happens to, to babies that die. I have had to wrestle with that question very much in my own life, as many of you know. But that is a discussion for another time because I don't believe that's what verses 15 to 17 are talking about at all. Why are they right where they are? That's the question we have to ask. What are they about? And for starters, let's consider what Jesus just said about who is saved. Who does go home justified? It's not those who have a list of religious accomplishments, like that Pharisee. It's not those who, who have walked an aisle and, and prayed a prayer and been baptized and joined a church. It's not even those who week to week show up. And our faithful attenders who actually participate in the life of the church. None of that is what makes us right with God. Now, it can and will be the necessary work of someone who is saved. Faithfulness is demanded of those who have faith. Otherwise, faith is not faith. Faith without works is dead. But works can be faked. Exterior Righteousness, which the Pharisees exemplified, can be faked, superficial. But real humility, genuine repentance, real dependence upon God is not fake. And God knows the difference. Sometimes it's hard for us to tell the difference, but God always knows the difference. In contradiction then to the self-accomplished Pharisee, what does Jesus say here? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. That is, you have to come to Him like a child based on nothing in you, based entirely upon His works, His goodness, His righteousness. You see, they were bringing babies to Jesus, wanting Him to touch them. And that shows that, that some of them still saw Jesus as this kind of magician. And if He would just touch people, they would be saved. And of course, we do see in the Gospels, there are instances where Jesus does lay hands on people or, or, or different things, and, and they are healed of their diseases and whatnot. But it's not the actual physical touch that saves them. In fact, later on in Luke, Luke 18, in this very chapter, 
we're going to see that a blind man named Bartimaeus received sight. Jesus doesn't touch him in that uh, account. It is not the physical contact, it is the spiritual contact. It is the divine power of Jesus Christ. And yet as they're bringing the babies to Jesus, the disciples rebuke the people doing that. Why do they do that? Because they are so focused on the kingdom talk. They are so focused that by this point they see the bringing of children to Jesus as an intrusion. As an unnecessary obstruction. As a distraction to the things that are really important. And sadly, today and even in in many churches, the spiritual and physical welfare of children is only given lip service because they are too seen as an intrusion and a distraction sometimes. And because the disciples were doing that, Jesus put them in their place. They rebuked those bringing children. Jesus rebuked them. Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. Put nothing in their way, in other words. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to those who have achieved less morally, have achieved less religiously than anyone. The kingdom belongs to those who have less knowledge, have obeyed less, have fasted less, have paid less tithes than anyone, and have yet to show any sort of conscious devotion to the Lord. And what is Jesus' point there? It is not merely that He loves children, but that God saves sinners apart from what sinners do. God saves sinners apart from what sinners do. You do not faith your way into heaven. You don't, you don't work your way into heaven. You don't accomplish your way into heaven. Otherwise, these babies might have just been taken back home. God saves sinners apart from what sinners do. He saves based on what Jesus has done. And the case in point is the rich young ruler. You want to know why this text is where it is? Because someone young enough for others to see loads of potential in, someone already accomplished at the same time enough to be considered a ruler, probably in a synagogue, was coming up to Jesus. And this young man stood out probably because he was the most impressive, the most moral, the most spiritual, the most religious man in his synagogue most likely. And we see that in the label ruler, but we also see that in his testimony within the passage. Now, I've heard it theorized that the rich young ruler might have been Saul of Tarsus, who we later know as the Apostle Paul. And when you consider the account and Paul's later conversion and testimony, I can see how somebody might connect those dots. But any biblical evidence of a connection is circumstantial at best. It is speculation. But how this rich young ruler views himself is likely very similar to how Saul viewed himself before the light of Christ literally shone upon him. So, what was the rich young ruler doing? Well, verse 18 we see, he questioned Jesus. And whatever his spiritual condition was, he was coming to the right person for answers. He apparently saw in Jesus someone who was different, 
Someone who was to be respected. Of course, we know by now that people far and wide in Israel knew of Jesus as a teacher and as a miracle worker. So Jesus had name recognition by this point. He comes to Jesus. He apparently saw in Jesus enough to call him good teacher. So he is elevating Jesus above other teachers by that title. And because only God is good, he's even associating him with God. Because he sees in Jesus a living embodiment of of divine truth, truth from God. and, And he hopes Jesus will tell him what he wants to know. So what did he want to know? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that is the question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is always the right question as long as it's accompanied by a right answer. And in asking the question, what did this guy do? The rich young ruler unwittingly expressed insufficiency about his own worldview. You see, what is to be revealed about this as this unfolds is that the rich young ruler was measuring his own righteousness by the religion of his day. We look at this and the Judaism that permeated the culture, the works righteousness mentality that permeated the culture. He was measuring his own righteousness by his own claim in verse 21 that he had obeyed the law even since his youth. Still though, he comes to Jesus, even though he's done all of this stuff, he comes to Jesus with this nagging feeling that something is missing. Something is missing in my life. Something is missing in my heart. There's a missing assurance that I have eternal life even though I've obeyed since my youth. So he comes to Jesus and what shall I do? What work, what work am I missing to put me over the top? What work am I missing to guarantee myself the eternal reward? Jesus was asked a similar question in John chapter 6, verse 28. And what was his answer there? This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The work of God that grants you eternal life is to believe in Him whom He has sent. It's entrusting yourself to Jesus. And not saying, I've obeyed since my youth, but trusting in what He has done in your place. Or in this case, He was doing the work as they spoke. He was in front of them and He was heading to Calvary. And eventually an empty tomb. But with this rich young ruler, Jesus didn't answer him quite the same way. Oh, what He did ultimately pointed Him to the same right answer, but Jesus began to question the ruler. Why? Because of what John 2.25 says. John 2.25 says that he knows what is in man. He knew what was in man. Jesus knows what is in you this morning, beloved. He knows your heart better than you know your heart yourself. He knows what is in man. He knew what was in this ruler. And for the rich young ruler to ever believe, for the rich young ruler to ever really entrust himself to God he would have to see what was in himself first. And that's the way it is with all of us. We can't and don't authentically trust Christ until we first recognize what we really are. 
So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And, and Jesus was not denying his own deity here. There are some cults out there that point to this verse and say, Look, Jesus was saying here that he wasn't God. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. It's not even close to what Jesus was saying. He was confronting this rich young ruler to explain why he considered Jesus good, knowing that only God is truly good. Was the ruler really connecting Jesus with God? And if so, was he willing to lose his life to save it? Was he willing to follow Jesus, this good teacher, no matter what? And so in verse 20 he continues, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And if you're paying attention, those are commandments 5 through 9. The Ten Commandments, those are commandments 5 through 9. And, and when we examine the Ten Commandments in Exodus, we see that the first four commandments really have to do with our relationship to God. You shall put no other gods before Him. You shall not make idols. You shall... Not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are how we show that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. Which is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. Those last six commandments, on the other hand, they show us, they have to, to, to do with how we live out that love. How we love our neighbors as ourselves as we obey Yahweh in real life. And Jesus rattles off commandments 5 through 9 here. And the rich young ruler knows them, Jesus says. You know them. And the young man is quick to affirm he does. All these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. Those are the words of one who has deceived himself. Last week I made reference to Jeremiah 17 verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And here again we see, beloved, the embodiment of that in the rich young ruler. The self-deceived heart. Someone so steeped in his own self-righteousness. Someone so convinced of his own moral superiority. Someone so convinced of his qualifications before God that he doesn't even stop to think that if he had been keeping the law this whole time that he professed, why was something still missing from his life? If he's been keeping the law the whole time, why does he still feel incomplete and feel that he needs something to put him over the top and into eternal life? If he had been so obedient since his youth, why did he still think he needed more to take possession of eternity? I've actually heard people in my life say the words, I don't sin. Love that is the height of a sinful heart deceiving itself. Whether you say that out loud or if you say that in your heart, that is the epitome of self-deception. And as I read it put this week, no one has been taught correctly by the Holy Spirit who will ever talk about having kept all of God's commandments from His youth. And, and that quote is right because the Holy Spirit never teaches incorrectly. The Holy Spirit does not teach incorrectly. The devil, however, does. And false teachers who are under the employ of the devil do. 
but the one who is correctly taught by the Holy Spirit. The one who is saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He will cry out with Paul in Romans seven fourteen and following. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. Nothing good dwells in me. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That is the heart of someone who sees what's in themselves. And comes running desperately to Christ, by the way. The, the rich young ruler thought himself holy, thought himself righteous, obedient to the law since his youth, but deceived in his heart. He wasn't being taught by the Holy Spirit and Jesus knew it. One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, let me tell you what that is not teaching. That is not teaching that salvation requires poverty. That is not teaching that salvation means you have to fall below some arbitrary threshold. Salvation doesn't require you to wake up wondering where your next meal is going to come from or how you will get by another day or another week or however long. But salvation most definitely requires humility. It requires denying yourself. It requires the obedience of faith. And this rich young ruler had given lip service to Jesus. He'd called him good teacher. He'd done the stuff. He'd invested in the person of Jesus even as some sort of authority to speak for God. He was seeking Jesus' counsel, after all, on what the most important question of all eternity is. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He was coming to the right source. He just did not like the answer is, is what's going to turn out. Jesus challenged him to submit to him completely. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor. That is, abandon your personal agenda. Abandon your personal priorities, your earthly priorities, your creature comforts, all that you think. Divest yourself of everything that matters to you and follow me. You say you obey God, then cut yourself off from everything keeping you from obeying me completely and follow me. And would he submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ if it meant selling everything he had? Would he submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ if it meant it would ostracize him from family and friends? Because you have to think if he sold everything he had, they would look at him weird. They'd probably be angry at him. Would he submit to Christ no matter the earthly cost, not knowing exactly what was waiting for him around the corner? Would he submit to the lordship of Christ armed only with faith in Jesus and the knowledge that nothing can separate him from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Armed only with the knowledge that no weapon formed against him shall prosper and all who rise up against him shall fall in Christ Jesus. Would he submit to the lordship of Christ if life on this earth were to end as a result of his faithfulness to Jesus? Would he submit to the lordship of Christ if eternal life was all that he could count on? No, he wouldn't. And that is how so many live today. Beloved, we are quick to sing when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing it will be. But if that's all that waits for us, 
In practice, we say, no thanks, and we go away sad. But when he had heard these things, verse 23, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Matthew's Gospel adds, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He became sad. But not with the, the, the godly sorrow that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. On the contrary, when he was confronted with the cost of eternal life, he was not willing to pay the price. So he turned it down. And so you say, but doesn't Romans three or uh, Romans six twenty three? Doesn't Romans six twenty three tell us that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord? Yes, it does, and that verse is true. Entrance into the kingdom of God is free. Eternal life is free, but it is not cheap. Eternal life is the free gift of God, but it does come at a cost, and it, the cost is ultimately the precious blood of Christ. Our own blood isn't shed for the gospel. Our own blood doesn't buy us any more uh, salvation than giving away our possessions does. But based on what Jesus did for all He will save at Calvary, anyone who loves Him, anyone who is saved by Him, anyone who is His disciple, who follows Him, must be willing to humble himself, must be willing to deny himself, sell all your possessions. You must be willing to take up your cross and follow Him. We sing, wherever He leads, I'll go. I wonder how many of us come close to meaning it. Beloved, any time you feel the cost of being Jesus' disciple, any time you feel the cost of being a, a faithful Christian, a Christian at all, of obeying the Lord, any time you feel that cost is too high in this world, you remember the rich young ruler, and then you look at the cross until that feeling passes. The most dangerous sin, beloved, is thinking you have obeyed even since your youth or since whenever, deceiving yourself but not being willing to truly follow Him. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17.9 The next verse, verse 10, says, I, Yahweh, search the heart I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. We need the Lord to diagnose our hearts. You can deceive yourself, beloved, but you'll never deceive God. You'll never deceive the one who searches hearts and minds. Jesus named off... Commandments 5 through 9, and the rich young ruler was like, you know, check. Did that, check. He didn't consider the 10th commandment. Jesus intentionally left out, you shall not covet. In his unwillingness to sell all he had, he wanted more and more. And his heart of covetousness was revealed. And if you want more than Jesus, you don't want Jesus. I've said it before, Jesus plus anything removes Jesus from the equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So he may have questioned Jesus, he may have shown Jesus the superficial respect 
you'd expect. But when it came time for Jesus to change his life, he went away sad because he would not honor Jesus as his Lord. Jesus looked at him and said before he left, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Realize, beloved, after all we've seen, that this has a lot more to do with whether you're poor in spirit than what your bank account looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, the kingdom of God, eternal life. And it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who thinks there is righteousness in them to enter the kingdom of God. We must come to Him as a child. It's all of God. It's all of Jesus. And so this rich young ruler went back to his riches. But then others heard this exchange and said, Then who can be saved? And that's entirely the point. That's the whole point. Who can be saved? No one can be saved. It's impossible for a man to be saved. It's impossible for a man to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible for the unholy to mix with holiness. It's impossible for righteousness to mix with unrighteousness. There's nothing in us worthy of salvation. But He, Jesus says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Or as Paul puts it after saying, Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? In Romans seven twenty four, in verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because whereas you can't not sin, Jesus never sinned. Whereas you are not holy, Jesus is holy. Whereas you are not righteous, Jesus is the righteousness of all who believe. Whereas you cannot save yourself, the very name of Jesus means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. It's impossible for you. But it's possible through Christ Jesus our Lord. It's free, but it's not cheap. The most dangerous sin is to live and think like you can still be the Lord of your life while you claim Jesus is the Lord of your life. Eternal life is free, but it will cost you everything. To be exalted in eternity, you must be humbled entirely. And nothing in and of yourself permit the children to come. Come like a child. And my prayer this morning is that some would. My prayer this morning is that people would come to Jesus like this, not resting on even a lifelong accumulation of religious acts, but like children surrendering the riches of the heart to Him. You know, a child comes to his father, a child comes to his mother in utter dependence and eagerness. And that's how we have to come to Him. Finally willing to follow Him. Willing to lead wherever. When you're a father of small children, your kids will go wherever you lead them. It's when they grow up and start to think for themselves that things begin to change. We need to stop thinking for ourselves and listen to the Lord.
That's the only way you come to salvation. That's the only way to enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, may your people be staggered this morning by your grace and humbled by your love, convicted by your Holy Spirit, and drawn through your Son. Help us to walk in love, in holiness, and in righteousness that only comes from Christ. May we come like children, no matter how old we are. May we come unto eternal life. I ask this in Jesus' name. And we pray for Him to come. Amen.